Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of American Atta, where Gregory Rodriguez and I tackle all of the big challenges facing uh, the country in our own jovial and lighthearted but dense, in a substantive sense of dense way. Um, we're going to talk today a little bit from where we left off on our first episode in what I think we should be characterizing as what does make America great again or what does not make America great again or what makes a nation or people great. We hear a lot about that, of course, obviously. And um, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like, you know, Nixon's secret plan to end the war in Vietnam. It's kind of left to whoever the viewer or the listener is to kind of come up with their own iteration. But it, it seems like what has, what this the, the MAGA movement has morphed into is, is more kind of an angry sense of America, um, a, a people kind of in decline, uh, a people that are blaming others, a people that have this sort of false sense of their own history in its own power, in its own might. And it doesn't seem like a particularly honest assessment of, of what makes either an individual great or a, a nation great. And I wanted to kind of explore that topic with you during this episode. Great. What I think the problem is not only with Trumpism, not only with MAGA, is that American exceptionalism turned into a form of American triumphalism. Like America is only great insofar as that in that it's better or stronger or richer than someone. And it's really it's a contentless uh, uh, concept. You know, you're better simply because someone's. It's all you know again in contradistinction to somebody being lesser than you and. For America to become great, and this goes back to the notions of atonement that you mentioned in the first episode, America has to acknowledge its own sins. Uh, there is there is this very striking puritanical moment. Uh, there has been previously on the right, now on the left, in, in which there's right and wrong. There's no textured view of humanity. There's no textured view of society. This is heroes and villains. And that's how we've been, I mean, you know, obviously Trumpism lends itself to that. Uh, so it's perfect for the moment. But if we are to move forward to become a great nation, because I do not believe we are a great nation, we have to acknowledge our own sins of the nation uh, collectively, even if one's grandparents, even if one was not part of X or Y incident or era, one has benefited on some level uh, as part of the country. And, 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 and one must collectively deal with it. And one of the things that struck me uh, in May was the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II, uh, where President Steinmeier of Germany gave a, a speech that was unbelievably moving. And I'll just read, if you will, two paragraphs of it. In, and he, he says, um, it is only because we Germans look our past in the face and because we accept our historic responsibility that the peoples of the world have come to trust our country once more. And this is why we, too, can have confidence in this Germany. This is the core of an enlightened democratic spirit of patriotism. patriotism. No German patriotism can come without its cracks, without light and shadow, without joy and sorrow, gratitude and shame. Rabbi Nachman once said, no heart is as whole as a broken heart. Germany's past is a fractured past with responsibility for the murdering of millions and the suffering of millions. 
That breaks our heart to this day. And that is why I say that this country can only be loved with a broken heart. Mike, can you imagine an American president, not shaming, but embracing good, evil, benevolence, generosity, and sin, I, that, I think that is required on so many levels of a people, uh, for this people to really advance and really to even begin a racial reckoning that we think we've begun discussing over the last couple of months. It's a, that's a really great question. Let me answer by saying this. I certainly don't think that this president, Donald Trump, has that capacity. I also don't know that the politics would allow a Barack Obama to give that kind of a speech either. Right. He was he was chastised and criticized so vehemently by going on what was characterized as his apology tour through the Middle East early on in his administration. But having said that, I don't know if we could have a president who could not give that speech after the Trump era. Because it's so crass and so brazen and so laid out to bear what we have been so afraid to confront and look openly in the face. And the fact that we could have so much hidden in plain sight about the Civil War, slavery, white supremacy, you know, the Jim Crow era, the, the, just so much so evident on its face and pretend like it was just not that big of a deal. Um, I, we weren't ready for it. I, I think the fact that it, it spilled over and we'll keep using this, this analogy, or at least I do, of, the, of your uncle with the, you know, with a, with a substance abuse problem at Thanksgiving dinner. He's kind of passed out and drooled on himself and, and ruined the That's dinner. And now my uncle, you meant that our uncle metaphorically. <laughs> yeah, I did. Our, yeah. Um, it needs to be, it has to be confronted. It, it's too, it's, it's too evident on its face at this moment in American history. You can't pretend like the Trump era didn't exist. Right. And it's not just Trump and Trumpism, especially in the last year, as his polling numbers have started to slide and his base has started to contract, the only thing he has left to consolidate, whatever it is he identifies as America, you know, whatever, making America great again, is just blatant, pure, straight up, hardcore, in the veins racism. Yeah. It has to be addressed. Absolutely. Exactly. Obviously, it's a foregone conclusion that's not going to happen with this president, but I really appreciate your point that it would be political, politically difficult for others and particularly difficult for a Barack Obama who was, who was weighed down by the burden of his blackness. For sure. Uh, and so, but, but Barack Obama did speak eloquently and other, other, other American presidents did speak eloquently about the need to, to embody our ideals. The, 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 the notion of Americanness, I mean, even Hillary Clinton said, our greatness is our goodness. Uh, you know, she did, that the implication was we are as good we are as great a nation insofar as we are seeking to be a moral nation. And now that's just, obviously, we do. But so that's always, that's a strain of America, too. And, and, and it doesn't have to be an apology in that sense. But at the very least, I'm hoping that we can develop a sense of patriotism, a sense of pride that isn't about winning, 
that isn't about, it's always very external looking. You know what I mean? It's always, it's always about, again, who we are vis-a-vis -vis someone else. And wouldn't it be great to say we are a great nation because we take care of our people or, or but it's, it's always very combative and very, it's a very violent patriotism we have. And well, I, I totally hear your point of the, the political, being politically problematic. Wouldn't it be nice if we had a, a I don't know, a more morally driven sense of patriotism? It would. Let me ask you where that comes from, and is that unique to America? Well, I mean, the the I, it, it comes from the Puritans. It comes from the notion that uh, so all sort of the, all, all the colonies, to some extent, had some sense that this was an elect nation when it was born. But it was but it was really the the, the New England colonies, the, the, the drive from the, the, from the Puritans who arrived in 1630, as opposed to the Pilgrims, who brought this idea that this was a covenant, that this was a sacred nation and that that infused itself into the emerging country after 1776 that sort of sacred language that that we we are a city upon a hill which was a a, a sermon that john winthrop the first governor of massachusetts gave uh to people on one of the ships that on, on the fleet that came over in 1630. uh so and that is it's always a prod to greatness it's all and greatness uh, in this case, was 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 predicated on the notion that you you had pleased God. Uh, so th that that that's that, that that's the essence. That the origins is a Puritan origin that that we are a city upon a hill. But where does the example unto the world? Where does the winning come from? Where does the violent sense of the violent genre of patriotism come from? <laughs> I'm going to dodge that right now. Uh, but you know, I just I, read, I just read, I was reading writing about Theodore Roosevelt this morning. I mean, I, the, the, the frontier culture, uh, you know, from the Scotch Irish early on, and to sort of the, the multi-European whiteness moving west was very much the greatness of the country was it becoming continental. The greatness, and it became continental by virtue of their taking the land from Native Americans and Mexicans. So. So the greatness of the country was bound up with imperial violence, uh, and it's really hard to sort of disentangle. Can you imagine America without that sort of imperial vision? So I don't so know. We just, just, we, just heard, we just heard President Trump give a speech at Mount Rushmore on the 4th of July on our 244th birthday just a few short days ago, where he reclaims the concept of manifest destiny as a source of national pride. There you go. Saying this is who we are. I mean, he's, but he's saying this is our birthright. This is part of the American DNA. Which, which, in which I would agree. It is part of the DNA. And, and to me, reckoning does not mean destroying the past. It doesn't mean erasing the past. It doesn't mean fully condemning the past. It means coming to grips with the past. And to say, yes, this happened. Yes, we did that. And yes, certain things have to be done to rectify the pain or to acknowledge the pain uh, 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 that, that, that Manifest Destiny created. But yes, it is part of the DNA. But both can exist. Both can exist. You can, you can be, the good and evil exist in the world. And the way we talk about it at this point is eradicate the evil, eradicate the evil. And each side thinks the other is evil. So, but it, it is, the manifest destiny is part of the DNA of the United States. But my, my answer and, 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 and is that we must atone for 
the good and the bad and allow both to exist in our minds that we are both, as are all humans, we are both, we're right. all capable of both. And that's, I think, the important point is what you're saying is not to deny the history, not to em embrace it warmly as part of uh, who we want in terms of our future, but certainly an acknowledgement of our past yeah. and in so doing atone. And, and right. atone, atonement, as I would argue, as it is for an individual, it's not denying your past transgressions, it's owning up to them. And that's how you achieve a higher level of actualization as an individual and as a nation. As I like to say, bam. <laughs> One part of that is 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 I, I think bears. Maybe 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 we've said this, but that's not what Donald Trump is saying, right? He's saying saying that there's virtue in that history, that the fact that we were a a people seeking to dominate others. Yeah. We were trying to expand from both ends, one end of the continent to the other, is what made America great. What, the, what he is saying is, what you are suggesting we should atone for is literally what is part of our greatness. No, no, no understood. And we, we, I, I, I don't really, you know, I, I don't consider Donald Trump a good, you know, <laughs> I, I don't consider him someone, you know, worthy of arguing with about history, but but, but I, I think what's important about that speech, if it was, other than that it was really embarrassing, uh, was the weakness that it was appealing to. Was what, you know, you know the, 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 there's a, the, the most devastating critique of Steve Bannon I've ever heard was, uh, he's, um, he's what a smart person looks like to a dumb person. But so Trump is, is, is what a strong person looks like to a weak person. And, 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 and this, I don't say that disparagingly, I, I mean that, in a sense, that the sort of the, the chest bumping, it, it's what it's designed to do that I think is so striking. It is, it is really trying to, um, he's trying to rile up a people who feel defeated on some level. Um, and, 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 and it's very, it's very primitive. And you know what, dude, and I think you know more than clearly most people that, that it's not gonna work in the end. There's too many, there's too few people who are gonna buy that message. The, the Mount Rushmore message. Is that defeatism a part of the American tradition or is it a new development? Well, it's not really defeatism. I mean, most, I think most in empires and most nations romanticize, particularly low points, romanticize a certain greatness of the past. I think that's part of peopledom, this, this sense of a, a, a you know glorious history that one you know one comes from, and even on the shittiest day of your week, you can say, "Well, I'm a descendant of Ba," you know, whatever. You know, my my Mexican my my grandma, my mother's father from Chihuahua, always told us we were you know we were part French. So if somebody were treating us like shit for being Mexican, doesn't me remember you're a little French. Uh, we weren't, by the way. But there's all these you know people do all sorts of things to make themselves feel better to elevate their status, and um, it's it's. It, it, it's not, it, it's just really, it, it's nostalgic, it's romantic, and it's sort of like, you know, you may be shitty now, you may be, you may feel, but really, I think it's a weird combination of chest bumping and his constant victimhood. Like, why don't you explain to us what, you know, you, I'm going to start asking you questions, buddy. Like, what, what the sense of victimhood, what, why does he do it, one, and who, did, who is it designed to work on? assuming that it's calculated on some level. 
Well, let me talk politically because that's the, the best lens that I can kind of explain it through, right? Is the identity of different political tribes and different political groups. And I will say that I think that the politics of victimhood um, coalescing on the American right took a lot of us who, who um, have been running campaigns and working with Republican voters for a long time. It took us, it took us by surprise uh, in 2016 when he was first elected. There was, I think, this, um, um, I, and, and like all, most surprises in politics, it's not that surprising when you look back and say, oh, that's what, the, that's what the road signs were saying. Of course, it's obvious now. But at the time, you know, in a multi-candidate field, you had one candidate who was so distinct and so crass, but so clear in that politics of victimhood and victimization. And I think that it was um, a sign, and again, it's part of the, the populist upswing on the American right that consumed the establishment, right? Us, us swamp dwellers on the American right. Um, there, was, there, there was undeniably a sense that the system, meaning America, meaning the Republican Party, meaning that everything but Donald Trump had failed them. There was nobody looking out for them because they were in decline. Their own party had betrayed them. Their own country had betrayed them. And the idea of taking America back wasn't just going back to the pre-Barack Obama years. It was going back to, you know, the post-World War II era back, you know, where America was dominant, where it was, there, was, there was no other, you know, before the Cold War begins, right? Okay. But let me make a distinction between the forgotten, the overlooked, the flyover, and the victim. Yeah. Okay. So, so I mean, I, the, the, you, you said you were the, the sort of the, the Republican establishment of which you may, I think you're part of, you were yeah. surprised. Stop. That strikes me as an unbelievable story. Yeah. It, I mean, I mean, this is the party of personal responsibility. The instantly overnight became the party of it's not my fault. No, I wasn't instant. It wasn't overnight. Like I said, when you look at the road signs, they had been there. Clear those markers had been there for decades. I think that we just never were aware, candidly. And I think it's happening on the American left too. By the way, I think the elites in both parties are failing their popular base. And I think that there's a, an extreme disconnect, which is why you have what's happening in the Democratic Party, which is not terribly dissimilar to what's happened in the American right, the Republican Party. And what it means is they, they have literally, it's not, there's a difference between a forgotten man and a victim, as you're pointing out. It's not that the uh, Republican voter thinks that they were just forgotten. They believe they're victimized. They believe that the, the government, the system is working against them. That's why there's these deep state conspiracy theories and the QAnon conspiracy theories. And it, it's, you know, the Chinese communists are out to get them. The Sharia law is coming from the Muslims. The Mexicans are bringing. But, but, but what the Southern strategy was also about fear. It was about being victimized by African-Americans. Like the Southern, so, so there was a lot of fear mongering on the right for a long time, right? I mean, prior to that, there was, you will be you will be victimized by the communists by the by the Russians. So, so to some sense, victimization was as you said in the air for decades. And and there's no you know I I, I made the huge mistake given the, the times of watching the 
Netflix Roger Stone documentary last night. Uh, and he's so blatant in his horrifyingly terrifying, terrifying way, he says, hate uh, moves people to the polls better than love. That's not a phenomenon of the American right, first of all. That happens daily on the American left, too. Okay. On the right, you hate your government. On the left, you hate corporations, right? And right. you're afraid of them equally because Monsanto or whoever else is trying to poison your, your kids, their big pharma is trying to poison your body or whoever boogeyman you want to imagine in the private sector is trying to kill you. And on the right, it's just government. So as I said, it's a social phenomenon. So the Southern strategy was about, I think, something very different. It was about the maintenance of a hierarchy. It, this, what we're going through right now is, is there's obviously shades of it, but it's, it's fundamentally different. The driver of what was driving people in the post-World War era in 1968 with law and order is different than what was driving them in 2016. I believe that. Um, I, I believe that there's a lot of overlap, but in understanding what is moving voters, they're very different messages and messaging. It's also why I don't think it's working, at least at this point in 2020. But, but just to my point, Willie Horton, which was, I guess, under George W., those ads were about a black man getting out of prison and potentially hurting white people. So. Implicit in the set of strategies. Well, it, it was under George. That was under George Herbert Walker Bush. Right, George I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm not George saying. Yeah. I'm not saying that doesn't. I'm not saying that doesn't exist. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But yeah. I, that's always existed, and incidentally, it will probably always exist. But that's a different argument. So I don't know. You know, the other point as we started is, and you, you said it beautifully, the, the idea of atonement. Um, and, and I'm not. I'm not saying you know. It's grappling, it's processing. I, I, I'm not interested as much in the declaration of guilt and the punishment. It's, it's absorbing the complexity of life acknowledgement. and acknowledgement. That, and in the same vein, one of the things that's really striking to me now during this pandemic is was it something like 130,000 Americans have died. And there seems to be very little that I'm aware of, 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 of commemoration, uh, of prayer, of, of collective sorrow. I, I, this is a country that, you know, that routinely shows, you know, professionalized governmental sorrow with the, you know, with the flag at half mast. And we have 130, I mean, and when, and when I compare this to 9-11, to Pearl Harbor, to the Alamo, if there were an enemy, particularly a non-white enemy involved, and this many people died, and many Americans died, we absolutely would be commemorating making these people's memories sacred. Uh, and right now, because they were killed by a fucked up little bug that seems to be hitting people in all sorts of scary ways, there's nothing. And again, that doesn't strike me as a, as a culture that deals with anything in a profound way. I mean, you, there, there's, yes, there are things that happen that are bad, done bad by one to another. There's also bad things happen. And there's not even an acknowledgement of that, dude. And, you know, the absence of a, of a national acknowledgement or state or city, it, it really worries me. It really worries me that, that we're not properly solemnly grieving 130,000 Americans. Why is that? I mean, that's profound. 
immature culture, culture that doesn't ever wants to show weakness, culture that can't understand darkness, a culture that's all, you know, th th one of the great, I, you know, trust me, I, I, I want to read the Mary Trump book, but I don't want to buy it. So I've been looking at my little, my LA Public Library app to get it for free, but they don't have it. But one of the reviews used the word toxic positivity for the Trump family. And that's my answer to you. Why we have this, like America is sometimes like the stewards on Southwest. It's like forced happiness. And at some point, you know, can we be happy while acknowledging, while acknowledging sorrow? You know, can we be strong while acknowledging weakness? I don't know. It's, there's something about our culture that can't seem to allow for the complexity of humanity. It just seems like this is a basic, a very basic problem. You said an immaturity, but we've been around 250 years. I mean, why now? Why this moment? We've been through far, at least as challenging times in our history. We've been through civil war. We, we've been through two great wars. We've been through great depressions. We've been through a pandemic. Why, why is this emanating now? And what is different in your question? What is this? The 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 lack of the ability to 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 come together and unite and be sorrowful and be and and commemorate and, and, and weep as a nation for what is happening to our countrymen. I think it's fundamental to. I mean, again, the other instance often, is, with the exception of uh, there was there were commemorations after the Civil War. There were commemorations after, but war allows you to gain to acknowledge, in my understanding of it, allows you to acknowledge sorrow and to somehow reconcile by, by sometimes sort of giving credit to the other side who killed you, such as the North-South, how they reconciled in the late 19th century. But there are mechanisms to do that in wars. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, think, I, think it's, I, I don't know if it's about uniting as much as we have a winner-take-all culture. And it's not working right now. And I don't know. I I, I think I, I I can't tell you. I, I don't. I think it's a bigger problem than politics. I think it's a bigger problem than. You know, the need to end first is that the problem? It's not over. We're just heading into this next big wave. Can you grieve while it's getting worse? Oh, absolutely. You can. Okay. One of the you know one of the one of the ways I you know, negotiated this, this pandemic, as, as you know, as I read the Spanish press every day. I read what I consider the greatest newspaper in the world, El País, not that I know every newspaper in the world. El País is a beautiful newspaper. And I follow the Spanish news. And every day during the worst of the pandemic, the conservative mayor, the president of the Comunidad de Madrid had a moment of silence. Every day, during it, acknowledge the dead, acknowledge in a solemn moment Last week, the, the, the king and queen of Spain had a mass for the dead. I mean, I don't know. There's something about it. it, it it's not, you know, President Trump didn't come out of nowhere, right? He, we can't blame him. He's a product of a culture that is, that, that is about winning. And this country does, is, a, is, is a sore loser. And unless it learns to acknowledge its losses, unless it learns learn how to lose, it can't be gracious. And this, this is a moment that requires grace, that requires acceptance, that, re that requires, you know, grief. Do you think that we can develop that? 
shit, you know, life generally, uh, you know, as we both know, one, one can become more empathetic as one grows. And that's why I use the word maturity. I think a 40-year-old a oftentimes by virtue of having survived more than a 30-year-old or 20-year-old often has more empathy, more sense of the difficulties of life, of, of what people go through. That's why I say immaturity, that, you know, you'd think that, that after going through something like this, people would have some pity for those who died and the families who grieved them and to acknowledge them. Maybe the answer to my original question is maybe we are a young adolescent still and are going through that phase of immaturity where we haven't. That's... We, we still, we're, we're a sore loser. We're, we're, too, we're too weakly constituted. We're too fragile an ego as a country to understand our role and what we could be. And you can't actually be great until you acknowledge the entirety of who you are. Bam. Brother, that was beautiful. That was another <laughs> good segment. Uh, thank you all for joining us. Mike Madrid, Gregory Rodriguez, tune in next time. We'll Hope you're enjoying it.